I want to uh, talk this morning uh, just about the, the gospel. <laughs> what is the gospel and, and how we proclaim and preach the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And you look at all the trouble that our world is in, and it seems like it's getting worse by the day. It really does. I mean, I know people say that, but it just seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, as you read the news and see all the craziness that is going on. And so as Christians, you know, we've always believed down through the centuries and still today that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when theologians talk about um, the passion of Christ, they talk about his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. They call that the Christ event. And it's interesting because Jesus certainly was a teacher. He brought a philosophy of life for us, but he's not primarily a teacher, and the church has never held his teaching as the focus or the most important aspect of his work. But the Christ event, God being manifested in the flesh and Jesus dying on the cross for humanity to save us from our sins is the main thing. The most important work that he does is not his teaching, but it is his redemption and restoration of humanity. Amen? So there's two ways that the gospel gets presented in our culture, primarily. <laughs> Probably more than two ways, but there's two ways that we hear that we can hear the gospel. The first and predominant way that you'll hear mostly coming from evangelical churches is a language of the gospel that, that uses the language of appeasement, that looks at the death of Christ and how we're saved through the lens of appeasement. And by appeasement, I mean a sacrifice offered to assuage the wrath of God. But it's not the only way to understand the gospel. The predominant way throughout church history to understand the gospel was a view of the gospel that in Latin is called Christus Victor, or simply means Christ the Victor. And so the lens of Christus Victor uses a language of redemption, it uses a language of warfare, spiritual warfare, and it uses a language of victory. And in fact, the word good news or gospel in the original language, evangelion, meant to announce the news of victory, that a battle had ended and that a war had been won. That's actually how they would have used the word in the context of the culture in which it's being used. But let's take a minute and let's think about the lens of appeasement. In the lens of appeasement, God, at least one third of him, is offended by humanity. He's offended by our sin and he needs, he requires, God the Father requires a blood sacrifice in order to be appeased. To satisfy what some would call his righteous demand for justice. When the gospel is preached this way, then punishment is the answer to humanity's great problem. <laughs> The great fix for humanity and God is found in the punishment or the death of Christ. When the gospel is preached this way through the lens of appeasement or the language of appeasement, then relationship with God is based on performance and things are viewed through a lens of good and bad, moral and ethical, seems to be the language that the church uses to talk about the gospel. When the problem with humanity is presented this way, the problem lies within us, within humanity, or humanity's sin nature, right? We have a sin nature, we're sinning against God. And the problem also lies within the heart of God. So within the heart of man is a sin nature, but within the heart of God is something that reacts violently 
and with wrath and anger towards the sin that's in the heart of man. So when the gospel is preached that way, the problem is intrinsic to the nature of humanity and it's intrinsic to the nature of God. Both natures have to be changed in order for there to be reconciliation. In the lens of appeasement, think about this, gang. Even repentance is insufficient to mend the rift. Because they'll tell you, even if you repent, even if you say you're sorry, that's still not enough. Because God has to be paid back. God's wrath has to be appeased. Punishment has to be dealt out for the sins that you already committed. So even if you come with a heart that wants to serve God, wants to know God, wants to relate to God, and you come sorry for your sins and repentant, that's still not enough. Somebody still has to die. There still has to be blood. <laughs> and God, certainly, so, so man is not, you can't restore the relationship even if man is free to repent. And you can't restore the relationship because God is not free to forgive. Because by being forgiving, He would be unjust because still His demand for punishment and blood. So God has a bloodlust that needs to be satisfied in order for reconciliation to take place. And this is how the gospel gets presented in a lot of circles using the language of appeasement. They wouldn't use it. They wouldn't be as graphic. I'm going to shock you with my language this morning because when you think about it, it is shocking the way the gospel becomes presented when it's presented through the lens of appeasement. God's not free to forgive. If he forgives, he's unjust. However, when you look at it through the lens of victory, what you begin to understand is that humanity, the problem doesn't lie within the nature of humanity. The problem lies in the fact that humanity has been taken captive by hostile forces. Forces that oppose both God and humanity. The problem then lies outside of humanity, not within humanity. The problem's not in the heart of God. The problem, God and man basically face the same problem. And so God's answer to the problem is not appeasement. God's answer to the problem is to take on human flesh himself to enter into the, the, the bondage, if you will, to the hostile forces that are external to man holding him captive in order to absolutely destroy them, to break the hold of them off of humanity so that, that, that reconciliation can take place. Estrangement, alienation does not happen because of things intrinsic to the nature of humanity or intrinsic to the nature of God, but because humanity's basically been held hostage and held captive and so is not free to enter into fellowship with God. Make sense? So we talk about salvation, because this is the issue here then, is salvation. When you use the language of appeasement, then we are not, uh, we are saved from God. <laughs> God saved us in Christ, but he, he did not save us from Himself. He saved us for Himself. The idea that Christ had to appease the wrath of the Father for us on our behalf is foreign, actually, to the Gospels. It's foreign to the preaching of the apostles. It's foreign to the early church fathers, with a couple of exceptions. But certainly it did not form the consensus of the church, because the consensus of the church for over 1,200 years was that the reason the Son of God became flesh was because, he had to because God had to deliver us from the hostile forces that kept us in bondage. So that the church, the consensus of the church for 11, 1,200 years was a Christus Victor lens of the atonement rather than what theologians call a penal substitution view, which is the view of appeasement. Are you with me? 
So, this idea that God had to be appeased really is pagan. In the pagan cultures, the gods were angry. The gods were wrathful. They, they wanted to punish people for their sins. And so they required sacrifices from the people in order to appease their wrath. Be it a virgin daughter, be it an animal, whatever the case may be, it was to appease the wrath of God so that you could have the, the wrath of the God, so you could have the favor of God come over your life. It's a pagan concept. It is not a Christian concept. And if it is not true, then the ideology behind it and the image of God that it portrays is absolutely a figment of your imagination. It is absolutely imaginary if it's not true. And the idea that the father needed to punish his son in order to get over his anger, in order to save you, is an imaginary concept. And that God is an idol and does not exist. If it's not True. So let's just look at this for a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to run through a lot of scriptures here. Let's look, um, 2 Corinthians, I've got them up here for you. Uh, let's look at this one. 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is, Paul, Paul's thought here, God was in Christ. Notice where God's positioned. God is positioned in Christ. If you have the language of appeasement, God has to be outside of Christ because He's being affected by the death of Christ. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said God was in Christ, now watch this, reconciling the world to Himself, not reconciling Himself to the world. The language of appeasement has God reconciling Himself to the world. The language of reconciliation in the Bible actually says, no, God didn't have to be reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. You cannot be Trinitarian. You cannot believe in one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit and believe in appeasement because to do so you have to separate the Trinity, which actually the church decided was heresy. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John, the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the... Not, not the sin of the church. Not the sin of the elect. Not the sin of the chosen. Not the sin of the saints. The sin of the world. I want you to notice something else there. Notice it's singular. It's not plural. And actually, in the original language, it's a noun, not a verb. The way the Gospels preached and the way we talk about things in the church using the language of appeasement, the problem is people's sins. God is judging. We scapegoat. Uh, to go back to what I, I preached last week, we scapegoat people. God is judging America because of abortion. God is judging America because of gay marriage. God is judging America. Take your pick. We pick the people group whose sin bothers us the most. And make them the scapegoat. The scapegoat. And say, they're the cause. And if we just deal with them, everything will be fine because God will be happy. Because we think the problem is sins, plural. We think it's actions. But... Uh, this is incredible that, that John would say this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because sin as a singular noun in the Bible is a personification of a hostile force. 
Sin is actually introduced in Genesis chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel as a personification, as a being that takes humanity captive. Sin lies at your door, God told Cain. Sin lies at your door like a ravenous beast. It hungers for you, but you should rule over it. So, so sin itself is, in, in the Bible, in the language of Paul, in the language of John here, is a hostile force external to humanity that is holding humanity in bondage. You cannot be intellectually honest with the story of Cain and Abel and believe that a sin nature is passed on from Adam. Because if the sin nature was passed on from Adam, certainly it was inherited by Cain. But when you read the story, it's not inherited by Cain because God is looking into Cain. Look at the story. He's not just looking at the offering. He's looking at Cain. When God looked at Cain and his offering, and He didn't look into Cain and say, sin is in your heart because you were born of Adam. He said, sin lies at your door, meaning it was external to him. But it's going to take you captive. So sin is represented as a hostile force that Christ dealt with to liberate the whole world. And if sin has been dealt with, why do preachers still make sin the issue? Because it undermines and demeans the blood of Christ and the sacrifice and the power of His victory. We have a victorious gospel and we talk as though we're defeated. Look at Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Now watch this. Yet we considered Him punished by God. It doesn't say He was punished by God. It says we considered Him punished by God. It doesn't say God had to be appeased. It said we viewed what Christ did through the lens of appeasement. The same Isaiah who's prophesying the death of Christ is prophesying the misunderstanding of the church. Stricken by Him, stricken by God, and afflicted. But notice it doesn't say that He was, it just says that we considered it. But He was pierced for. The word in Hebrew there could also be because. He was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. In other words, it wasn't the Father that did it. It was, it was the hostile force of sin that did it. The punishment that brought us peace. That brought who peace? Saints? Not God. It wasn't required so God could be at peace with the earth. It was required so that we could have peace with God. Makes you wonder if we've actually read our Bibles sometimes. I'm telling you, the language of appeasement is not there. And by His wounds, we are healed. Some have said that if the Father demanded the death and the blood of His only Son as a sacrifice to appease His wrath, which in my view is to acquaint Him with ancient pagan gods, who by the way were demons. But some say, if that's true, that it's akin to cosmic child abuse. Think about it. Now people get upset when they hear that. They get upset when they hear me say that. I've had friends get upset with me. For saying that, and I say, as a therapist, 
when a family is stuck in a cycle of abuse, they always cover and make excuses for the abuser. Even if, in this case, the abuser is an imaginary God that they've created out of their doctrines. Told you I was going to try and shock you with my... Think about it. If a father beats the hell out of his son, we call that child abuse. And yet the whole foundation of the Western gospel is God beat the hell out of his son so he didn't have to beat the hell out of you. If that's not cosmic child abuse, I don't know what else to call it. (laughs) So therefore, in my view, this version of the gospel is completely made up. It's imaginary. To me, it's ugly, even grotesque, even though I used to preach it. So the Bible speaks about redemption instead. What does the word redemption mean? The word redemption means to liberate from bondage or to liberate from bondage forces that oppose both man and God. See, in this version of the gospel, God and us are allies because we're facing the same hostile forces that are keeping us apart, that are keeping us separated. God solves the problem of the bondage that we could not solve for ourselves. So if we're held captive, what what hostile forces are we held captive to? All you have to do is run through your concordance and look at the word redemption and look at everything that we've been redeemed from. Redemption was a slave term. It meant to purchase and buy someone's freedom from the slave market. So we're told in Scripture that we've been redeemed from sin, yes? We're told that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law, yes? In one place, Galatians 4, we're told that we're redeemed from the spiritual forces in this world. And ultimately, of course, we've been redeemed from death. So if you want to know what the hostile forces are, they're sin, they're the law, the curse of the law, satanic forces, and death itself. That's really the problem. The problem's not God's emotional imbalance. The problem is not the justice of God being violated because He forgives. Otherwise, God's in bondage to His own nature. Right? So, we have to understand that God as a human being entered into all of this stuff and triumphed over it. Thus breaking forever the hold of the hostile forces over every single human being on the planet. Which means no matter who you are, no matter what your lifestyle's like, no matter what your belief system is currently, no matter where you stand in, in, in regards to your belief or not belief in God or in Jesus, you are still included in what He did. <laughs> he still did it for you. He still redeemed you. You are eternally, unchangeably redeemed by the Son of God and by the blood of the Lamb and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because if the problem is external to, human being, to humanity, then no human being, frankly, has to change in that sense because the problem is not inherent within them. The problem is outside of them. And those forces that held people in captivity 
have been overcome and it has an effect on every single member of the species so that every single human being is included in the redemptive work of Christ. Let me just play with you for a little bit. If it's not true that every single human being is included in the redemptive grace of Christ, then how can you be sure that it is for you? How can you know that you are not an exception? Because to think otherwise is to play the same game with yourself where you're looking at things through the lens of good and bad and saying you're good but somebody else is bad. You're chosen but somebody else is not. You're redeemed but somebody else is not. You're worth the sacrifice of the Son of God but somebody else is not. It's a trick of the mind. Otherwise, we can say, we're all included, and we were all affected, and all of humanity was affected by the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of Christ. If the gospel is best presented through the lens of appeasement, then the only thing that matters is the cross. Because it's at the cross, because the answer is punishment, and it's at the cross that sin was punished. Therefore, the rest of the incarnation and even the teaching of Christ and the ministry of Christ is actually irrelevant to your salvation. Not to mention the resurrection. Not to mention the ascension and the glorification of Christ is totally irrelevant to you because the only what really matters is the death of Christ. Now, some would say, well, the life of obedience that Jesus lived is important because what they say is that God plays a legal fiction with us. That really the problem is balancing, I guess, the books of heaven. And so Jesus earned a perfect righteousness. Remember, the language of appeasement turns relationship into a performance-based thing. Jesus performed to the Father's standards of righteousness and perfection. You and I did not perform to the standards of righteousness and perfection. God has to judge and punish you and I. But He doesn't want to. So He takes the perfect Lamb and He punishes Him instead. It just gets sicker by the minute. And we call that justice. Don't look at me with those tone of ice. Think about it. God takes the good one and punishes the good one so He doesn't have to punish the bad one. Right? Then He he plays a legal fiction with us. He takes the good that Jesus earned and somehow transfers it to our account. So now He doesn't really see us. He sees us through the lens of Christ, which is to say He has rejected us altogether. So you have a God who rejects His Son because of what was transferred from you to Him, then a God who rejects you because of what's transferred from the Son to you. Think about it. God rejects His Son because He takes your sin and puts it on Him. So He takes what is intrinsic to your nature, puts it on the Son, and looks away. Then God looks away from you and takes what's on the Son and puts it on you because He can't look at you. He can only look at you through the righteousness of Christ. I think that God needs therapy. Is it real forgiveness if payment is made? Do you really forgive a debt if you get paid back? 
I mean, to read the parable, you remember the parable of the man who owed a uh, debt he could not pay? And he comes before the, the man he owes, and he says, I'll repay it if you just give me time. And he says, no, I'll totally forgive your debt. Well, with the language of appeasement, there's no forgiveness because God's still going to get paid. I'll forgive your sins, but I'm still going to get paid with the death of my son. We even sing it in our songs. He paid a debt I did not owe. Or he paid a debt. How's it go? He paid a debt he did not owe. So God got what was coming to him. So your righteousness is greater than God's. Because you can forgive. And we'll even teach you to forgive. Unconditionally. And without recompense. Jesus taught, don't do, you know, if you'd only do good to those that can repay you, what good is it to you? Even the pagan, even the heathens do that. But we say God has to be paid back. So therefore we make our righteousness greater than God's righteousness. <laughs> All right, let's, let's look at some more of this. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's how Paul defines the problem. You were dead. God made you alive with Christ and He forgave us all our sins. Period. He didn't need appeasement. He just did it. It's because it's His heart. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Not being paid back, canceling the charge. Which stood against us to condemn us. He has taken it away. Can you see it? He takes away the hostile force. And nails it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christ as victor, not Christ as appeasement sacrifice. You see it? Nothing in here has the language of appeasement. How about this one? Hebrews 2.14 tells us plainly why Christ had to die. Hebrews 2.14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by death He might help the Father get over His anger? No. It doesn't say that? They taught me that in church. So that by death, He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. (laughs) And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So Christ's death dealt with the external forces of the devil that was holding all of humanity in captivity. He dealt with the principalities and powers that were holding people in bondage, making them their slaves and forcing them. Sin, holding humanity captive like a ravenous beast, uh, taking us captive and forcing us to do the will of the devil, forcing us to do the will of of sin, forcing us to, to be captured by the power of death itself. 
Christ broke the power of all those hostile forces. He broke the power of everything, holding every single humanity in bondage and in captivity. And since the problem, since there were external, external captives, the freedom and the victory deals, applies to all humanity because he dealt with the captor. If, if, if he left some humanity in bondage, he didn't defeat the captor. He just rescued some of the captives. If you have a rescue mission, if another army is holding prisoners of war and we send special forces in there and they go in there and they don't defeat the enemy, but they grab as many hostages as they can and get them out, the, 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 the enemy holding them captive is not defeated. But if they go into the camp and they wipe out every single captor, then what, three or four of them just stay in bondage? How's that supposed to work? Because the problem's not in you. The problem's outside of you. The problem's not in the people that you love. The problem is outside of them or whatever. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Except that it's been dealt with. They've been set free. They've been included. They've been redeemed. They've been saved. They really have been saved. They just don't know they can participate in it yet. So all that must happen, and this is where I think it's hard for people, all that must happen is people must get a revelation of what's already been done for them in Christ. Which is why we preach the gospel. The preaching of the gospel does not effect or cause salvation. It reveals the salvation that has been caused by the victory of Christ. Humanity is no longer... Now, here's the thing. People are still in bondage, right? People are still killing each other. People are still sinning, right? People are still dying. People are still held in bondage to... So what do you do with that? Well, the truth is, if the Bible's true, then there's nothing outside of a person that's holding them captive anymore. The only thing they're being held captive to is their own ignorance. The only thing they're being held captive to is their own deception. See, when the gospel is preached differently, what actually happens is we encourage people to believe in sin and the power of sin. We encourage people to believe in the power of the devil. So we fight him and we bind him and then he gets loose. So next week we come back and bind him again. And we bound him in our prayer meeting in our home last week, but apparently that didn't work, so we got more people together and we bound him some more. Because he's so powerful. Because we believe in the power of Satan. Do you see? So whole intercessory prayer conferences and movements have been designed to cause you to believe in the power of the devil. Rather than preaching the gospel that the devil has been defeated to give you a revelation of what's already occurred. Therefore, people who think they have to fight the devil are enslaved and in bondage to a lie and a deception and an ignorance, not to the actual power of the devil. See, belief is a powerful thing. You know, I'm sure you've heard, you know, that when they're testing your medicine, they have to test it for what's called the placebo effect. Why? Because they recognize that you can get healed from anything just simply through the power of your own belief. 
But they also recognize the power of your belief to make you sick. There's a story I heard John Hagee share years ago. I don't know if it's true. I'm sure it would. Why would he lie, right? I mean, he wouldn't lie, right? He tells a story about a man who gets locked in a, uh, a train car that he believes is refrigerated in the summer. And he believes it's refrigerated and he literally dies and the cause of death was hyper, hypothermia. When in reality it never got like below 70 degrees or something in the car. He believed himself to death. So you can create your own demonic bondage if you want to. You can create your own exorcist if you want to. You can play the role of Linda Blair. And talk in different voices and maybe even make your head spin around and puke up green pea soup or something. Just because you believe it so strongly. Am I saying there's no such thing as demonic possession? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying most of what... A lot of it is manufactured out of a belief system that encourages you to believe in the power of the devil. Believing, let me finish with this, believing doesn't cause us to be saved. Believing doesn't cause you to be redeemed because the cause was effected by Christ. All believing does is empower you to realize What's already true about you. That through the preaching of the gospel and through the believing of the gospel, what literally happens is that you wake up out of the unreality of sin and death and realize the truth of our freedom that's already been brought to us in Christ and by the work of Christ. You cease believing. In the power of sin, or that we're powerless to live a life that's pleasing to God. You cease believing in the power of the devil, so you stop going to war against him because you recognize he's already defeated. You don't pray to strongholds in the heavenly places, you pray to our Father who art in heaven. <laughs> and you stop believing in the power of physical death to separate you and us. From life. That's what the gospel causes. Let me ask this question. I'll close with this. Why when we're relating to humanity do we make certain sins the deal breaker with God? Like why is the church known for being against stuff? Because we've scapegoated people... I'll leave that alone. We scapegoated people whose sins we don't like and said that's the deal breaker with God. And instead of preaching the gospel to them, telling them that they're free, <laughs> telling them that they're redeemed, we tell them that they're bound because we believe more in the power of their sin than we do the power of the incarnation and the blood of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ to affect all of humanity and literally transform reality. Therefore, I would submit to you that we've not fully heard the gospel. In fact, I would even say that we've not fully heard the gospel until we can dump the language of appeasement in favor of the biblical language of Christus Victor. That'll make you think, I guess, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your power. 
Thank you for your people. Lord, thank you for the power of the truth. Thank you for the power of the proclamation of the gospel. Thank you for the way you're working in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, let me just say this. The whole, everything about Jesus then is about him freeing humanity from bondage to lies about God and lies about themselves so that his teaching everything is redemptive, not just his death. So now go back and read the Gospels from a framework in which God has come to teach us truth. God has come in Christ to teach us truth, to set us free from lies, then ultimately to break the power of sin and death so that we could be made free and then send the spirit of truth so that we can understand what's an already accomplished reality for humanity in Christ and see how much more sense and see the, the movement of Scripture through the Gospels in that lens, looking at it not through the lens of appeasement, but through the lens of Christus Victor.